everyone, I'm Jessica, and this is my sister Morgan. And you are listening to Suspicion. Today's episode, we'll be talking about a story that neither of us had heard of before, but has had a huge impact on the handling of missing children's cases today. This is the disappearance of Aton Pates. Listener warning, this case talks about a crime committed against a child. On May 25th, 1979, it was a hectic morning at the Pates Manhattan home, with Julie Pates trying to wrangle her three small children to get to school. Something that we are very familiar with coming from a family of four girls. We were constantly late to the bus that was right across the street from us. So we can understand a hectic morning. Yeah. So this morning, a smart six-year-old Aton awoke seeing an opportunity to push for some of the independence that he has been seeking. Aton woke up and convinced his mom that he could walk the short two blocks to his bus stop on his own. And Julie Pates reluctantly agreed. And this is New York City? Yes. So I bet kids walk around all the time. Right. They did. Especially New York City in 1979. Yeah. I imagine. Mm -hmm. Aton left the house with his book bag and a dollar to buy a soda at the corner store. And that was the last time Mrs. Pates would spend a morning with her son. Aton's teacher noticed immediately that he was missing from morning class, but didn't alert the principal. After Aton didn't come home that afternoon, Mrs. Pate started calling around and realized that Aton never made it to school that day. Something that still, every time I hear that part of the story, I, I can't understand it because as a teacher in today's world, it's almost impossible for a student to not be known as absent for in the front office. Right. And I do wonder, like, is that something that came out of maybe from what I researched, it's not something I noticed as being an outcome of this case, but potentially a different missing child's case where they didn't make it to school, similar situation. Yeah. May have made stricter uh, reporting. Reporting, yes, because from the get-go, there's a first bell, and at that first bell, you take either homeroom or first period attendance. Mom used to get hounded by our oh, school yeah. if I if I missed a class, or, mi- or not missed a class, missed a day, yeah. and she didn't call before first period. They, she would get They call her about three or four times the right. day Until if they don't hear from her. They had a yeah. confirmation. So you're right. It could be from missing person cases like this. The Pates' New York City apartment quickly became a command center for the search for Aton. Aton's face was plastered all over the city, including becoming the first child to have his face on a milk carton. The police took out bloodhounds along his route to search for any hints as to where he could have gone. The effects of Aton's disappearance reverberated across the city, and really the whole country. The outcome of his disappearance led to the teaching of stranger danger in homes and classrooms, which I definitely learned as a child. His disappearance also led to the formation of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is a fantastic organization today. And the day of his disappearance, May 25th, 
would be declared National Missing Children's Day by President Ronald Reagan. Even with all this publicity, though, and increased safety measures for children, the police were still struggling to find out what happened to Aton. So a little bit about the investigation. Um, immediately, different theories emerged on the case with several suspects at the top of the list. The most serious suspect was Jose Ramos, a convicted child molester who had a relationship with the former babysitter of Aton. At one point, this suspect claimed he had molested a young boy at his apartment and was 90% sure that boy was Aton. So basically a pseudo-confession. Yeah. And I don't want to I don't want to go into details about this guy at all, but he was definitely a known creeper on young boys. So this is, is not something out of his character. realm or character from what I read about him. Well, especially if he had a relationship with the babysitter, he, he had access. Or at least would have known of Aton. Yes. Mm -hmm. However, the police were unable to charge the suspect at the time due to a lack of corroboration and evidence. But suspicions remain for years to come. In 2000, uh, police spent about eight hours searching the basement of one of Ramos's old apartments, where he allegedly had told a prison inmate was where he uh, buried Aton's body. But this search came up with no results. In 2001, the Pates made the tough decision to have Aton declared deceased so that they could pursue a civil case against Ramos that would find him responsible for Aton's death. Can you imagine having to do that? No, because you always hear stories of parents never losing hope that their kid's alive. Right. And to have to declare legally that your six-year-old son is, is dead. Even all these years later, that's tough. But when you can't mm -hmm. get anywhere in the criminal system, I think it's a good thing to pursue a kind of justice that you can get. Exactly. And also because they win the civil case. And finally, they have court documents that declare someone, declare this Ramos man as responsible for their son's death. So they have the legal documents saying that somebody did something to our right. son. However, they were still searching for answers to where their son was, what happened to him. And the father, Aton's father, Stan Pates, does something that is just unimaginable. He, twice a year, sends... Ramos a picture of Aton with what did you do to my little boy written on the back this makes this is part that makes me this makes me cry I almost want to cry every time I know I just can't imagine having to communicate with one a child molester but also with someone that you feel is responsible for your six-year-old son's death and not be able to get answers in 2010, 
a new DA came to the Manhattan office. And you see this with a lot of cold cases Mm -hmm. is that when there's a new sheriff or new police officers or a new DA, when they come into office, they like to kind of revive old cases. Especially one that's as famous as this case. Yeah, this was the first kid on a milk carton. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everybody during this time period, they would know this case. So when uh, the new DA comes to office, the um, police began pursuing other suspects, one being a local handyman who had known Aton. Shortly after Aton went missing, this handyman poured fresh concrete onto the floor of his workshop. And in 2012, investigators were able to dig up his floor, but again, they found nothing. And I do think I saw something about this. Briefly, I can picture the cover of a People magazine where it said something of there's a new lead in this case of this boy in New York City. So I, I, I saw this a little bit, but never anything to this extent. I bet if we looked it up, we could maybe find the People magazine oh, yeah, article, cool. which would be interesting. And if we're able to do so, post it on our uh, website. Yeah, that's a great idea. So while this search of the handyman's floor uh, led to no physical evidence, because this search led to renewed media coverage, it brought forward some information from a New Jersey man who believed that his brother-in-law, Pedro Hernandez, was responsible for Aton's disappearance. The accused was 18 years old at the time of Aton's disappearance and was working at a bodega near his bus stop. And as little as a few days after Aton's disappearance, the accused moved back to New Jersey, where he confessed to at least three different people that he had hurt a child in New York, although each time the details changed. Yeah, from my memory of researching this case, I believe he confessed to a someone in his prayer group or the entire prayer group, a former wife. But one time someone mentioned that they believed he had confessed to hurting a young black boy. Another time they thought it was a teenager. So the details he was giving were wishy-washy. And none of them really felt like they needed to report it because they just really didn't believe what he was saying. Also, I I think I would feel kind of nervous if somebody told me something like that. I would feel nervous bringing it to a police station because I have no other details. Right. All I know is, oh, this guy that I know said he hurt a child in New York. Right. I mean, That's it. it it's tough. It's hard to be in that situation. And mm-hmm. we obviously don't personally know this man and can't decide if he's credible or not. Clearly, though, when his brother-in-law comes forward with this information, it is taken very seriously. But hindsight, right? So like you said, though, um, the word of his brother-in-law really swayed the police. They brought the suspect in for questioning, where after six hours of untaped interview, a recorder was finally turned on, and Hernandez gives a taped confession. From this confession, police learned that the killer lured Aton 
into the bodega's basement by asking him if he wanted a soda. And like we said earlier, the things he left with when he walked to the bus stop were his um, backpack and a dollar for a soda. So this kind of makes sense if you would lure Mm -hmm. him in with a soda. And like we mentioned, after this incident was when parents started teaching their kids about stranger danger. So So that that makes some sense. So he, I I believe his father described him as being a trusting kid. So it's Mm -hmm. just awful that someone would take advantage of a child's innocence. Innocence, yeah. From this confession, the accused says that when in the basement of the bodega, he grabbed Aton by the neck and started choking him. He then claims that Aton was alive when he placed him in a bag and then in a box and dumped his body about a block away. So Horrifying. this is very upsetting. I do want to mention here... No matter what, this story is horrifying. The idea of imagining him being alive at this time is mm-hmm. very upsetting. There is some indication from some of the wording of the research I did that he was trying to say I didn't outright kill him with my own hands. Oh, okay. To this get like is, a lesser sense. This is sentence. more. I, this is more subtext, I believe. So I don't want anyone really taking this as he said this, these were her, his intention, but some of the some of the things I have read have indicated that the subtext here might be that he was trying to say I didn't kill him with my own hands. and Which again you see time and again is if someone is accused of murdering anybody, they will sometimes create a story where the person has died, but it wasn't a direct cause from them. They didn't physically kill them with their hands right, it was kind of something that happened separation or compartmentalization yes. uh, yeah so anyway with this confession the DA feels that they have enough evidence to go to trial that being said the case really relied almost exclusively on the taped confession given by the accused there was no physical evidence uh, there was really nothing to tie him directly to Aton other than this confession. Did they even have a body? They didn't. No body. No body. So the defense case, on the other hand, centered on undermining the accused's credibility. So some of the points the defense made. One, Hernandez claims he lured Aton when he saw him waiting for the bus. So this is something he says in the taped confession. The odd thing here is that if he was if he made it to the bus stop, why had no parents who had been there with their children mentioned that they had seen Natan? And and that's something that you would have remembered, right? As a parent, I'm as sure the kids boy. all go to the same school and are at the mm-hmm. same bus stop and know each other. Mm-hmm. Next point is that Hernandez also told investigators that he hid Natan's backpack in the bodega. I believe he said he threw it behind a freezer. The police did a very extensive search at this time. As we mentioned, you know, they had bloodhounds, they had people combing the area, uh, but they didn't find this backpack, and the thought is that they would have gone into that bodega right near his bus stop. As, As a student, or I was a student, 
you always have your backpack on you every day and you're constantly touching it. So your scent would be on there. Right. And even if they had just seen the backpack, it had little elephants drawn on it. I mean, it was, it wasn't a, I think everyone had the same backpack kind of situation. It wasn't a North Face black backpack. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Hernandez was also diagnosed with a personality disorder by a defense psychologist that leaves him with difficulty distinguishing between reality and fiction. So I want to emphasize that this was diagnosed by a defense psychologist before they were going to trial. We will talk about the prosecution's counterpoints here, um, but I think it's worth noting that it's oftentimes that the defense has an expert on a situation and the prosecutor might have a separate expert and they may have contradicting opinions on what may have happened. And I would have loved for there to have been a third party psychologist to weigh in maybe even on this particular case because, again, it's a defense expert versus a prosecution expert. So you don't really know who to believe. Right. And I want to make a point here as well. Another piece of research I found was his daughter, uh, Hernandez's daughter, did testify at trial and claims that her father would say things like, I can hear ghosts talking to me and things of that nature beforehand. I don't know what to make of that exactly, but just something I think worth throwing in up to this point. Yeah. On a similar track, they found that Hernandez has a very low IQ, um, which they say makes him susceptible to suggestion. And on that note as well, what happened for six hours before any kind of recording device was turned on. I think that no matter what someone's mental state, they can be in the best mental health state of their lives. If you are in that kind of adrenaline situation where you're six hours with police officers talking about a child going missing, Anybody is susceptible to suggestion. Our dad has constantly told us from we since we were got younger, into true crime, sort of watching Dateline, yeah, yeah, or CSI. Yeah. <laughs> um, no matter what, even if you are innocent, if you're picked up by the police, you ask for a lawyer immediately because who knows what you're gonna think within six hours alone in a room with no right. food, no water. Something I'd just be interested to know from a police officer's perspective about what the protocol is there. Definitely. Uh, The final point the defense relied upon was circling back to that previous suspect, Ramos. They argued this is a suspect with greater means, greater motive. And I didn't read this explicitly, but I'm sure him having been uh, convicted in that civil case uh, or found liable in that civil case could have been used as a point to support this. That's something I was thinking about too as we were going through this case is what makes Hernandez's Mm -hmm. confession more reliable than Ramos's kind of confession at the beginning. Right. Especially, you're right, if in the civil case, 
that's a judge, I assume. Right. Yeah. So a judge says, yes, this man's responsible for your child's death. I just don't see how that doesn't have as much weight as this. There's totally different levels of proof needed in civil cases. And I I am saying this as someone who knows only a very little bit about the actual law, law system yes. and justice system. But it's definitely different. I thought the exact same thing. If Hernandez can be prosecuted based only on his confession, why couldn't Ramos be on his pseudo-confession? Yeah, so I wonder why they wouldn't have, after the civil case, why they wouldn't have charged Ramos then, even before all of this came out about Hernandez. It was something that the DA cited as not having enough evidence. Okay. To be fair... One was a full-blown confession with details, and one True. was a, I'm 90% sure I not even killed, but molested this yeah. child. So, okay, something different. Yeah. So, moving on to the prosecution's points uh, to counter everything the defense was saying. A prosecution expert found Hernandez to be sane. He said he was able to socialize. He was married, he had children, and when he had to renew his driver's license, he never reported any kind of mental illness. Right. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't either. A thing? When did I last renew my driver's license, I I guess? I just did. Did you notice that there was a question on there about that? No, not unless all of my information was the same, so not unless when I renewed it when I turned 21 maybe then I I had to say something but yeah this is something I found in my research but as someone who's been through the driver's license renewal process Mm -hmm. I don't remember seeing this but yeah also could vary state by state I'm sure well and now it's online and you just have to just keep checking and you go through exactly yep yep it was easy Mm -hmm. um also so this is pretty interesting We've been talking back and forth about the camera situation and the taped um, interview part. The prosecution says that the investigators had no legal obligation to turn the cameras on. I actually have read a book about the um, yogurt shop murders. Oh, yep, okay. And um, as I was reading it, this is something that came came about throughout the book is if investigators have to turn on tape recorders and cameras or not. And um, there was a lot of backlash when a woman became the new uh, sheriff Mm -hmm. of this town. And I can't remember, you know, specific details, but I know that she faced a lot of backlash because she made it mandatory for every investigator to turn on a tape recorder or a camera during interviews just to be safe. My question is, I am someone, I understand that this is not CSI or law and order, Mm -hmm. and the police do things to keep us safe, and being, I'm sure being overly restricted 
can be counterproductive to what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. In the case of a recording of any interview, I don't quite see what could be the downside there. I don't either because no matter what, it will, it can't hurt you unless you're doing something wrong. bad. Again, it'd be interesting to get a police officer yeah. perspective. We here. definitely have to because this is something that I've continuously I'm, for I'm years. curious about. Yeah. So anyway, um, the prosecution also said that the police seemed sincere. Right. Again, who knows? We don't know these officers. No. We don't know the prosecutor. So and honestly, they could be very reputable. I'm sure. I'm sure they are reputable. But there's also something about the fact that it's a six-year-old child. Mm-hmm. No, no matter what training you've gone through, when you have to deal with facing somebody hurting a, child. a kid, even if you're sincere, you know, I could snap. Right. Anybody could stuff. It's hard. The prosecution also claims that Hernandez confessed many times previously. Uh, people just didn't report it because they didn't know whether or not to believe him. And this goes back to the three different people who said that he said he had hurt a child. Right. right. However, the jury had difficulty with the mental health piece of this trial. And they, and also the fact that they were not able to see the whole interview. So the same things that we've, we're talking about, the jury saw that as well. After 18 days of deliberation, the judge called a mistrial due to a hung jury. So to this point, when we say the jury had difficulty with the mental health piece and not being able to see the whole interview, yes, I think they all did to some extent, but also it ended up being an 11-1 hung jury, which 11 said guilty and one said not guilty and that's what led to the hung jury so it's just something to point out that not everyone was unconvinced after after this so I do have a quick quote from the juror who decided to vote not guilty yes so the quote is a CBS News interviewer uh, says You know, it's very hard for people to wrap their minds around the idea that somebody would confess to murdering a child if he didn't actually do it. The hung juror responded with, yeah, and a lot of the jurors said that in in our deliberations. But the whole reason why you don't just throw someone in jail when they confess is that there's a lot of people out there with mental illness that could confess to lots of crimes, and it doesn't mean they're all guilty. I included this because something that's important to Morgan and I is this idea of reasonable doubt in our justice system. And there are tons of stories. We may cover one where someone is found guilty on very little evidence and basically all on emotion and then are later exonerated and spend years of their life in prison. So... I don't know. I feel after the research I've done, I'm not sure exactly. I think there are reasons to support. Obviously, a confession is a very good reason to support that Hernandez was the killer. There's also questions that I have. And so 
I just want to remind this idea that our justice system is on this idea of reasonable doubt. Um, and I think that this. personally, this piece, this mental illness piece, is a reasonable doubt. Right. In this case. And also the fact that the confession was something that was so heavily relied upon in this case because this trial was in 2017 17. or 16. At this point, I don't know if making a murderer has come out yet, but <laughs> people have been talking about confessions not being valid, valid for at least a couple years. Also being taking the other stance for a case that's this cold. True. That's the only thing that's you have. That's the only thing you have and you want to get resolution. And if someone confesses and it feels legitimate to a mm -hmm. prosecutor and the police and for this family to switch from thinking it was Ramos to thinking it's someone else, that's pretty convincing as well. So I just I can't I keep coming back to Ramos. I can't get him. I think if I was a juror and they mentioned him, I, I wouldn't be able to get him out of my head. He just seems from so far away, he, he just seems like the guy. he did it, like the guy. And of course, this is all speculation and he was never charged with anything. But right. from an outside point of view, many years later, I just still cannot understand how he was not considered more heavily more heavily pursued at least in the media coverage i mean he could have been the thing is ramos was on their suspect list for years so i think they pursued that they probably they definitely they, did. as far as they possibly could and then when that didn't pan out and they found another person who was a viable suspect to give up all of those years of pursuit, I think you can say Hernandez was a pretty. I just can't. I just suspect. can't get over the fact that he had a relationship with a former babysitter. Right, it was a close connection. It, it's yeah, fair. And Hernandez has a much weaker connection. Yeah. So anyway, the prosecution quickly sought a retrial after this mistrial, um, and after 38 years. On February 14th, 2017, Hernandez, the killer, was found guilty of murder and kidnapping and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Still to this day, Aton's body has never been found. So even though somebody has been uh, brought to trial and convicted of the murder, it's still upsetting that the Pates have never been able to put their son to rest. So anyway, we want to end this with a note on abduction rates. Morgan and I can be very anxious people and we oh, listen yeah. to a lot of true crime and research a lot of true crime and that can definitely keep you up at night. So we wanted to throw in this statistic from the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children. Of the 25,000 cases they helped with last year, so less than 1% were non-family or stranger abductions. Which is where this case would fall. Meaning stranger danger, a good thing in a certain sense. 
However, it's not necessarily always the case. Right. So uh, I want to point you to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's website for more information about this topic. So you can visit www.missingchildren.com to find more information and also consider donating. They do a lot of good work for this cause. And they also have a website, www.kidsmarts with the Z, smarts with the Z at the end, org, with tools for teaching your children about personal safety, which is huge. Uh, teaching it in a way that does not cause fear mm -hmm. is really important. We believe, Jessica and I, more so on being prepared. Yes. We think that everybody should live their lives being aware of things like their surroundings and just knowledge about how to defend yourself right. and just have information. But we don't want anybody to lead their lives in fear. Yeah. So thank you for listening. Uh, please leave a review and make sure to check out our website at suspicion.com. That's S-I-S. P-I-C-I-O-N.com. And if you have any cases that you would like us to look at, we definitely would love to see what everyone would like to hear. All right. Thank you. Thanks.